0: Would you go with me to John chapter four, John's gospel, chapter four this morning? We've we've noted this often in our study here in John's gospel that the apostles purpose in writing this gospel was to make it clear, very clear that Jesus Christ is God and he is God in human flesh. And I have pointed to what is likely the verse that I think best describes John's gospel in John chapter 20. You're going to be in John chapter 4, but listen to John 20 and verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now John is making it clear there in chapter 20 and verse 31 that Jesus is the subject of his writing. We have seen him make that clear in the first three chapters. And when we come to chapter 4 today, he continues. That's the focus today. The focus is on Christ and him proclaimed as God in flesh. And we've seen Jesus interacting with different people, of course, throughout the first three chapters of John. But the focus has always been on Christ. The subject has always been Christ. And what we've been seeing all supports Jesus' claim of Messiahship, And today we come to chapter 4 and Jesus' interaction with and witness to the woman at the well. We know the story. You likely know the story of the woman at the well. You know it well. Pardon me. And here, too, the story isn't really about the woman at the well. You might have thought that the story was about the woman at the well. It's really not. It's really about Jesus. We're going to look at verses 1 through 26 today, and I want want to point to the point of this whole passage, and it is verse 26. I want you to skip down and, and look at the end of the story with me. Verse 26, really not the end of the story, but the point of this passage, these first 26 verses, Jesus says it in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. This is the point. Jesus is making to the Samaritan woman. This is the point of these first 26 verses. He's telling her that he is the Messiah. We're going to see it here in a few moments. She says, I know about the Messiah. (laughs) Yeah, that Messiah is going to come and make things clear to us. And he says, you're talking to him. I who speak to you am he. Keep that in mind as we read these first 26 verses of John 4. This too... Is about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Verse 1, chapter 4. Follow along in your copy of God's Word. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, And he goes on, The water that I will give him will, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not have uh, be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, when he comes he will tell us all things jesus said to her i who speak to you am he now i want you to note first as we enter chapter 4 here this morning that there's this pointer pointing back to what's happening in chapter 3 where we saw the disciples of john bringing their concern to to jesus to to john about jesus It was about Jesus gaining more of a following, more followers than John once had. And John's response, of course, we saw it last week, was that, hey, this is just as things should be. According to John telling his disciples, he said, look, no, this was the whole point. This is just the the way things should be. People should be following Jesus rather than me. He makes it very clear when he says in John 3.30, He must increase, but I must decrease. They should be following him. You should be following him. Verse 2 clarifies that it wasn't Jesus doing the baptizing too. And we noted that last week, but as we look at verse 2, it's actually his disciples who are doing the baptizing as a part of Jesus' ministry. Jesus was there. And there was baptizing being done in his name, and it was a part of his ministry, but it was his disciples who were actually doing the baptizing. But note that as we enter chapter 4, we find Jesus' response. And this is what I want to start with this morning. Think about the response to this controversy about his baptizing more followers than John. What was Jesus' response? We see here when, when it says here in verses 1 and 3, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, verse 3 says, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. What was Jesus' response? Jesus, think about this, Jesus absolutely, he looked at what was going on, and he looked at the trouble the Pharisees were having with this, and he, I think he realized the Pharisees were looking at this as an opportunity, and he refused to be a part of this controversy rather than stay, rather than add to what happened to, to, to be looking like would be a, a severe controversy going on amongst the followers of John and the followers of Jesus, and this growing rivalry between these followers of John and Jesus, instead of allowing them to get a foothold, these Pharisees get a foothold here and maybe get a handle on, on causing more um, opposition and in, in getting a foothold in this uh, growing rivalry, It may be causing divisions between the ministries of Jesus and John. Jesus decides to do something about it. What does he do? He leaves. He's not going to have anything to do with this controversy. He moves on. And Jesus, by walking away from this controversy, makes it very clear that this was nothing to divide over. This was not important enough for him to stay and involve himself in. You may recall that Paul warned the church at Corinth about divisions like this when he wrote to them, telling them that they were acting like unbelievers with all the jealousy and strife that was causing division among them. He says this in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 4, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not... Yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? And I think here's the point. As we think about what Jesus did in his response to this growing controversy and the potential for the Pharisees to get a hold of this and and get a foothold and cause division amongst these followers, Jesus says, I'm not going to have anything to do with it. This is not important. This is non-essential. He wouldn't have anything to do with dividing believers over petty squabbles. And how we need to be careful how easily the church still divides today. We should learn from Jesus' example here in John 4. What we see here in John 4 is Jesus' true concern. And this should be the real concern of the church today. Here's the message for us today. Here's Jesus' concern. Here's the challenge to us. Jesus loves people. Jesus loves people. Jesus loves people so much he came to be the sacrifice for their sin. Amen? Jesus loves people. And he says, look, this is going to divide people. This is not essential. This is not important. This is what the introductory verses in John 4 leads us to to understand, that Jesus loves people so much. He says, look, I am not going to divide the church over this. I'm not going to divide my people over this. So he moves on to continue to take the gospel that people need, the people he loves, desperately need, and he takes the gospel elsewhere. Verses 3 and 4 say he left Judea and departed again for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, as Jesus arrives, he comes to this town in Samaria at Sychar. We have this vivid picture here of his humanity. Sometimes people will argue well, okay, Jesus was God, but he wasn't really he wasn't really God in flesh. He was like a spirit. You you don't get that from this passage. Obviously, Jesus is living in human flesh. Jesus is living as God in human flesh here. We see it very clearly. So in the middle of the day, right? It's in the middle of the day. The the sun is at its hottest and with the distance he's traveled, he's exhausted and he stops at a well. It's Jacob's well. And in fact, um, that well is still in existence today. I, I've learned from reading that the That that well is a very deep well. It's still of of much use to many people still today. And it's fed fed by a spring. And so it's a well that's still uh, being used today. And as Jesus rests beside that well, along comes this woman from Samaria. And she's come to retrieve some water. Now there's an interesting contrast here, I think, between this woman of Samaria and You remember Nicodemus back in chapter 3? There's an interesting contrast here. D.A. Carson points to it when he writes, Nicodemus was learned, powerful, respected, orthodox, theologically trained. She was unschooled, without influence, despised, capable only of folk religion. He was a man, a Jew, a ruler. She was a woman, a Samaritan, a moral outcast. And then he says this, and both... Both needed Jesus. There's a lesson for us, isn't there? Interesting contrast, interesting challenge to us. Indeed, both needed Jesus, and Jesus loves people, so he has time not only for the learned, but also for the unlearned. Jesus loves people, so he comes to rescue the perishing, whether they be well-off, well-known, well-respected, or not so, right? Right? Jesus loves people, so he gives himself to all who believe in him without distinction. Right? Well, let that instruct you as you go about your business this week, and as you see people that you may not think live to your standard, right? Don't forget that Jesus loves people. And if you're his child, you should too. So as we see in verses 7 and 8, Jesus asked the Samaritan for the Samaritan woman for a drink of water. Certainly he's thirsty. Certainly he knows what he needs. He needs a, a cold drink of water right now, but he also knows what, what she needs. We're going to see this. He asked her for a drink of water because the disciples, we're told, have gone off into town to, to buy some food. Her response, seen in verse 9, shows her surprise that, that he would even talk to her. Now, not only would Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, but she was also a social outcast. There was also a well in the city. Think about this. There was a well in the city. She's outside the city. She's out retrieving water from the well that's outside the city. Why? She's not accepted in the city. She's not accepted at the public well. She's a a moral outcast because of an immoral lifestyle. She had brought ridicule on herself, very likely from the public she's trying to avoid, right? And so she goes outside the city and there is Jesus to meet her. Look at Jesus' answer to her in verse 10 when she expresses surprise that He would even talk to her. That was unusual too, that a man would talk to a woman in public. He knows just what she needs. Verse 10 says, If you knew the gift of God... And how it is, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, what does she need? Well, Jesus knows what she needs. She needs the life that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ, she needs real life, she needs new life. She needs to be regenerated, born again, as we've seen in earlier chapters in John, right? So what's Jesus doing? He's showing her the only way to have the thirst of her soul satisfied. He's showing her the only way to real joy and true satisfaction. She needs what? She needs living water. But well, she's confused by this. And maybe you are too. What's living water? Well, we see here in verse 11... Her saying, but wait, look, you know, it's it's like she's still thinking about water, right? Verse 11, it's like she's saying, but wait, look, you know, uh, can't you tell this well is deep? You have nothing to draw water with. So tell me where you're going to get this living water. You know what she's thinking about? She's actually thinking about flowing water, moving water, like from a spring. And so she's like, where are you going to get that water? You don't have anything to draw water from this deep well. And where are you going to get this moving water? This living water you speak of. She's still confused by this. Look at Jesus' reply in verses 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, he's talking about the water from the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus knows what she needs most is not water to temporarily quench her thirst, right? He's talking about, and you know what he's talking about here? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. She desperately needs the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the life-giving, never-ending spring of water that brings eternal life and brings regeneration, brings new life, causes you to be born again, right? Listen, this Samaritan woman cannot quench her thirst. Much like you and me without Christ. She cannot quench her own thirst. It's one of the reasons she's had five husbands. She cannot quench her thirst. The unquenchable desire for, think about it, for better. The unquenchable desire for more. The unquenchable desire for couldn't things just be different than they are? Right? It can't be satisfied. Think about it. It cannot be satisfied without the Holy Spirit. That unquenchable thirst of the soul cannot be satisfied without the spring of eternal life that the Holy Spirit brings. But she still doesn't understand. Jesus is revealing a little bit more and a little bit more. She still doesn't understand. She's still thinking about how nice it would be to not have to come all the way out here to the well anymore. (laughs) How nice it would be to not even be thirsty anymore. And yet, Jesus still knowing what she needs, he proceeds. She needs what he offers, and it's not water It's forgiveness of sin. It's the work of the Holy Spirit is what she desperately needs. She needs the work of the Holy Spirit to overcome the sinful desires of the flesh. That's what you and I need before Christ. We need the Holy Spirit to move into our lives to overcome the sinful desires of the flesh, right? In Mark chapter 5 and verse 32, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's what she needs. She needs to see her sin. She needs to see that she's desperately lost without a Savior. She needs to understand that she's a sinner in need of repentance, which which leads to life. Repentance leads to life, right? Because you repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ. And He gives the, the spring of water welling up to eternal life, the Holy Spirit. So what does Jesus do? Jesus knows she's still not understanding and He's trying to make it clear to her. So Jesus suggests that she call her husband. Why? He's not making fun of her. He's not being mean here. He wants her to see her need. Jesus wants her to deal honestly with her sin. So she obviously has a desire to... She obviously has a thirst from within that can't be satisfied. She could look at her own life and, and attest to that, right? She's not only had five husbands, but the man she lives with now is not her husband. What's obvious to Jesus is that she's she's done nothing but worship her own flesh. She's done nothing but work to provide for her own flesh, to, to try to bring satisfaction and joy to her own flesh. What she needs to see is that the only way she'll ever have the thirst of her soul quenched is to repent of sin. To repent of her sin and believe in Jesus who gives the Holy Spirit that spring of water welling up to eternal life. Think about this. How is Jesus treating her? I said it earlier. He wasn't making fun of her. He wasn't being mean. He was lovingly, Gently, without condemnation, leading her to see the truth that she desperately needed to see and believe in. In verse 19, she's finally starting to understand just a little. When she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then in verse 20, she brings up an issue. This was a point of contention between Jews and Samaritans over where one should worship. What he's saying may have just piqued her interest a bit, and she may be asking an honest question here, trying to discern the answer to a, a common issue, one that Jews and Samaritans had a, a large disagreement over. And Jesus answers her, in answer to her question, he makes it very clear that where one should worship is would soon be of far less importance than how one should worship. You get that? Jesus tells her, look, it's not where you worship that's important, because the Jews and Samaritans were dividing themselves over where they should worship. They were building temples in certain locations saying, no, this is the place to worship. No, this is the place to worship. And Jesus comes along and says, the time is now we need to set all of that aside because where we worship is not the important question. The question is, how will you worship? How will you worship? The real question of worship will not be about where, but how. The hour, verse 23, he says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. True worship can only happen from within. Because the Father is seeking people who will worship Him in spirit and truth. True worship comes from within, it doesn't come from going through the motions. These are the people that God the Father is seeking people who will worship Him from the bottom of their hearts. And so he begins to make this clear to answer this maybe this objection, maybe this question, maybe this concern of hers. He begins to help her see that true worship only takes place when it's honest and heartfelt. You are not truly worshiping. If you are not worshiping from the bottom of your heart, you are saying to God, God, this is is what I believe. This is how I want to obey. This is how I want you to lead me. I want to yield to you. Lead me. Work in my life to humbly and obediently come before God as we sing in in worship. This time we call it a worship hour as we sing songs of worship and we give as an act of worship and we open the Word as worship. If you aren't doing these things from the bottom of your heart, you still are not worshiping. I don't care how many times you come to church. If you don't worship from the bottom of your heart, you haven't worshiped. And that's what Jesus is saying here. So Jesus says in verse twenty-four, "God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth." Well, her reply in verse twenty-five shows that she still isn't quite understanding when she says, "Oh yeah, uh, you know, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When when He comes." He, he will tell us all things it's as if she's saying you know yeah i know he's coming when he gets here he'll clear all this up for us yeah this is tough this is hard to understand this is confusing but but when the messiah gets here he'll he'll make it all clear she's still not quite following him is she so what does Jesus do he makes it very plain for her by saying in verse 26 this powerful statement how her how her thinking must have been challenged when he said this and and how I wish I could have seen her face, <laughs> because she says, "Oh yeah, I know about the Messiah. When he gets here, i will clear it up." Verse twenty-six: "I who speak to you am He." Did you imagine the look on her face? What ran? You? Could you? Her heart probably skipped a beat or ten, right? What has Jesus done? Think about this with me. Jesus has just taken her from her place of unquenchable human thirst to the answer to that thirst. He's just revealed to her that He is the Messiah. He's the only way to the true life-giving water, the Spirit. He's the one, yes, with the answers. He's the one with the only answers. And whether or not she ever believed in Him, the Scriptures aren't explicit here, but we'll see later in verse 29 that it certainly appears as though she did believe because When you look at verse 29, you see she goes to tell the the townspeople about Jesus. Remember, these are the townspeople she was avoiding by going to the well outside the city. And she says to them very excitedly in verse 29, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And obviously she was convincing because the next verse tells us many went. But here's the point this morning. Here's the message for us. Here's here's the challenge to us. In this Samaritan woman, we have a very vivid, very clear illustration of each of us without Christ. You realize you're the Samaritan woman before Christ. Without Christ, you too are groping about in this life, even thrashing about through life, trying to satisfy all the cravings of your soul, all the cravings of your flesh. And without Christ, nothing satisfies. What a clear illustration of our lives without Christ we have here in the text. We're all struggling about trying to quench the thirst of our souls without, without the life-giving water of the Spirit. We must have the Spirit if we're going to know what true life is. Just what she needed. It's just what we need. And then Jesus steps in to our lives and he begins to show himself to us. And he reveals the need of our souls is not the things with which we're trying to satisfy ourselves. It's none of the things, right? It's none of the relationships with which we think we're going to find all the answers to joy and peace and happiness. There's nothing wrong with things and relationships. We need them both. God made us that way. But they're not the answer to our souls hunger and thirst. The need of our souls is really the spring of water welling up to eternal life, the Holy Spirit. The need of our souls. We have this vast emptiness that we're trying to fill and it needs to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit until we come to the point that Jesus was trying to bring the Samaritan woman. He was trying to bring her to a point of repentance where she would see the sin in her life and realize that her her life was truly empty and it would only be filled when she repented of sin and believed in Jesus Christ. We need the new life that only the Holy Spirit brings and it's only ours when we repent of sin and put our trust in Jesus Christ. That was your life before Christ. If you're a follower of Christ, that was your life before Christ. You've learned since then that you had to confess that yes, I'm a sinner. I am... I am now repentant for my sin. I want to be saved from my sin. And I believe in Jesus Christ for my own salvation. That's where we had to come before we could receive that spring of water welling up to new life, right? That's where the woman at the well needed to come. That's where Jesus was bringing her. He was bringing her to a point of understanding in her life where she would see clearly her need and the only way to have it met so the challenge for you this morning, if you're an unbeliever, is that that you need to repent also. You need to repent and you need to believe in Jesus Christ because like the woman at the well, you're thrashing about in life, going through all the motion, trying to satisfy the hunger of your soul, the thirst of your soul, and it cannot be met until you understand that you're a sinner in need of repentance and cleansing through the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin today. As you look around the room this morning, if you're an unbeliever, you look around the room this morning, you're no different than anybody else. We're no different than you. We're all sinners. Some of us are sinners saved by grace. And it's because of God's grace through the Lord Jesus Christ, we can say, my sins are washed away. We are not made perfect. We're not completely righteous. But in in God's eyes, we have the righteousness of Christ because of the blood shed for us. And we want you to partake of that. If you're an unbeliever, you need to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ today. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're a believer, I challenge you that you need to never forget. It's not the the next thing that you need. It's not the next relationship that's going to bring all the joy and peace and satisfaction you hope for and long for. It's not found in any of the things the world offers. It's still in Jesus Christ. At one point in your life you realize that I need Christ. There's nothing here that's going to satisfy me. But as you walk the Christian life, we still live in this world, don't we? And we still face the challenges of of this world. We still face the destroyer, Satan, who prowls about seeking those whom he may may destroy, right? And though he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world, we still sometimes struggle with sin and we still sometimes get distracted from what's really necessary, that well of water, that spring of water welling up to new life in us, the Holy Spirit. And so as followers of Christ, I challenge you, don't ever forget, it's not the things that we sometimes long for still, we sometimes are weak and long for things in this world to satisfy our desires, you still need Jesus Christ to satisfy the longing of your soul. You still need the Word of God dwelling in you richly. You still need to humble yourself before His throne of grace in prayer. You need to take your burdens and concerns to Him and leave them before Him. Because it's only reliance upon the spring of water welling up to eternal life within you. The Holy Spirit. That gives you new life. That brings true joy. That brings true satisfaction. When you yield to the work of the Holy Spirit, so believer, don't forget. Jesus Christ is still the answer. Jesus Christ is still the answer to your questions, to your soul searching, to the thirst of your soul. And He alone satisfies. Praise God. Bow your heads with me, would you? Father in heaven, we come before you this morning reminded once again of, of just, just miraculous work that you do in our souls, in our lives when we put our trust in Jesus Christ in giving us the Holy Spirit to work in us, to renew us, to give us new, new life. The true life that we long for that without Christ we, we can't find. So God, we thank you. And we praise You, and we praise Your Son, Jesus Christ, for working in us through the work of the Spirit, this new life, welling up from within, giving us the encouragement and the strength and the wisdom that we we must have to live in this world and this life. God, I pray for unbelievers this morning that You would open their spiritual eyes to see these truths from Your Word, that they would see the desperate need of their souls that they're longing to fill, and it cannot be filled in anything or one other than Jesus Christ, and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that he gives. So, God, I pray that you would bring them to the point of, of their need, help them to see the, the, the desperation of their souls without without your son, Jesus Christ, and help them to repent of their sin and believe in him. God, I pray that you would strengthen your, your children, strengthen your people to be faithful to you, to obediently walk with you, and to, to truly enjoy the, the peace and satisfaction that comes through the indwelling presence of the work of the Holy Spirit that you give your children. And we will rejoice in this. And we will bring great glory and honor to Your Son as we pray in His name. Amen.